0: Amen, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is in the middle of the Bible, Uh, it is page 518, if you're going to use a pew Bible, uh, page 518, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at verse 12 through verse 18 today. When you've got it, say, I'm there. If you need more time, say, wait a second. All right, and if you're not yet even looking for the passage, say, I don't care. (laughs) I'm just trying to expose, expose your heart this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 18. And it says this I the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem and I applied my heart to seek and to search out all uh, uh, to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all is vanity Striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who who, who were over Jerusalem before me, and and, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is vexation, much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This morning I want to preach to you uh, uh, from this text on the subject, the vanity of Knowledge the vanity, the emptiness of knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, God, and we ask that you would speak to us through it today. Help me to communicate your truth, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts to shape us and fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Knowledge is valuable. Knowledge is vanity. What's the value of knowledge? There is real value to knowledge. For example, $248.50. That's what it cost us a couple years ago to get our furnace started. You know, my wife waits until the coldest night of the year before she finally allows us to turn on the furnace. It's not until frostbite is seen on the fingers of our young ones that she says, okay, flip it on. And so we flipped it on, and you've been there before. It doesn't come on, and it's zero degrees in the house, <laughs> and so we bit the bullet, and we called a technician to come out. He got the machine running. All of a sudden, the house is filled with warm air, and he gives us a bill for $248.50. So I asked him, could you break down the bill for me for a little higher than I thought? He said, well, your problem was that you needed to push this reset button. $248.50. I said, could you give me the breakdown of your, your cost there? He said, sure, 50 cents is what it cost me to push the button. $248 was my knowledge of what button to push. All right, I made that last part up. The rest of it is true. But I make a point. Knowledge is valuable. It made him $248.50 that night. If you grew up on PBS like I did, you might remember the public service announcement, The More You Know, with the little jingle, something like that. The More You Know. That lives rent-free in my head. And there's value to it. Knowledge of your body will save your life when something isn't going right and you check yourself into the ER. Knowledge of mental health can help you deal with bad feelings and thoughts. Knowledge in school can help you get degrees, which helps you get jobs, which pays money. Knowledge of prejudices and racial injustices of the past will help us to, uh, to, to, to be aware of injustices in the future. Knowledge of the streets will keep you alive. Whether you're living in the streets, hustling, or whether you're just walking to school, keep your head on the swivel. Street knowledge. There's value to knowledge. There's value to knowledge, right? Now let me give you some definitions. Knowledge, facts. The awareness of facts, all right? Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge to accomplish our goals and purposes. And there is great value in knowledge. And there is great value in wisdom. And even the writer of uh, Hebrews, even the writer of Ecclesiastes agrees with this. Turn over with me quickly to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7, chapter 7 verse 11. He says, wisdom like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who has it. Verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man More than ten rulers who are in a city. The writer of Ecclesiastes does not disagree. There is value to knowledge. There is value to wisdom. Wisdom is, is as valuable as, as, as ten rulers... In a city. And so then going back to chapter 1, verse 17, why does he say that wisdom and knowledge is like striving after the wind? So on one hand, he says wisdom is valuable. Knowledge has value. On the other hand, he says, chapter 1, knowledge is all vanity. How do we understand this? Well, to understand this and to understand anything in Ecclesiastes, we have to understand what Ecclesiastes is about. If you're new with us this morning, we're in a series through this book of Ecclesiastes It's part of the, the wisdom literature and scriptures, which includes Proverbs and Song of Solomon. It was written about a thousand years before Jesus was born. It's in the Old Testament. And like Proverbs, it deals with issues of wisdom. It's very different than Proverbs, though. So Proverbs, most likely written by the same author, Proverbs comes along and says, hey, wisdom is great. It's all good. Wisdom is life. If you are wise, you will live. If you are unwise, you will die. That's Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes comes along and says, so you think you are wise, you're still going to die. So you think you have knowledge. How does that get you? past your looming death that's ecclesiastes so how do we understand it well verse 12 through 14 is extremely important in unlocking the meaning of this book in verse 12 the preacher introduces himself as as the preacher as the king of israel the preacher is sort of his pen name if you would he's a powerful man the son of David, most likely Solomon, verse 13, he explains his experiment to us. What he does is he's examining everything done by humans, everything that humans do in this life. And verse 13, he shows us the limits, and this, I believe, is the key. In verse 13, he says his limits in this examination is everything that happens under heaven, meaning not taken into consideration what is above heaven in verse 13. He also calls this in verse 14, under the sun. Meaning, he's saying, I am examining all of life without any reference to God. And I want to see if I can find meaning in this life. Another way to put it, if you think of uh, all of our earthly life as our horizontal dimension, going this way. The horizontal dimension of earth has everything to do with what's, what's in our society and the things that we can see and touch and learn and explore about the world that we live in. But we as Christians know that there's also a vertical dimension. We're not only trapped in the horizontal, but rather we understand that there is a spiritual dimension. There is a, a sense in which we're able to know who God is. And that changes everything for us as believers in Jesus Christ. What the author of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's taking away that vertical and he's saying, imagine with me for just a moment that there is no vertical. That all there is is the horizontal. And what I'm doing is I'm going on this journey as if I am somebody who does not believe in God. To see if I can find meaning in life without God. Are you with me? And so his conclusion, he gives to us right off the bat, his conclusion is it's all vanity. It's meaningless. It's, it's like clouds which you don't remember. It's like a vapor which is here for just a moment. It's like smoke which stings your eyes and it's so thick, but as soon as it's there, it is gone. Quickly faded. In. in verse 13 then he says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Meaning all the tragic human beings who live in this world with no understanding of the vertical. They're living in this world seeking to find meaning In the horizontal. And this world is hard. Oh, the tears that are cried in this world. How many tortured souls endlessly toiling in this world to try to find meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in what they do and what they know and what they can take pleasure in. And he says it's all vanity and these generations go on and on and on. Generation after generation. Hundreds of years. Thousands of years. Where people just keep doing the same thing. And it's an unhappy toil, he says. While this writing is thousands of years old, it rings as true today as ever. Consider the sadness in, in our society. Consider the depression in our society. Consider the suicide rate in our society. Consider those, the number of those who self-medicate with drugs and alcohol getting high in order to get by he's only confirming what we all in a sense already know to be true in our heart and that is this that living life for life's sake is meaningless and it's an unhappy business it's filled with sorrow and pain and loss and suffering So in the previous sermon, we looked at the vanity of success last week. Next week, we're going to look at pleasure. Today, we're looking at knowledge. What he's doing is he's looking at the whole gamut of life, and he's saying, could I find meaning in any of this horizontal dimension? But first, before we get into it, let me ask you a question. Are you seeking satisfaction in Knowing things. Are you seeking satisfaction in knowledge? Before you say no. Before you quickly turn me off and say, I'm not one who idolizes knowledge. I'm not one seeking fulfillment in knowledge. Before you say no, let me remind you that we live in an information knowledge era. If you think of previous generations, if, if the sum total of man's knowledge amounted to you know, an, an inch or three inches of knowledge, today we could say that we have Mount Everest at our fingertips. On our phones, right here, just in case I've got to fact check myself as I go, I keep it with me, you know what I'm saying? Because we can. Everything is right here on our phones. We can search Any fact, we can search up any actor in any movie, any time, any place of history, any war, any song that you're trying to remember. We've got it all right here. All of this knowledge, all of these facts. Social media has introduced to us a whole new realm of knowledge. You can right now read everybody's thoughts. You can follow and keep track of everybody's little accomplishments, whether it's a baby or whether it's a graduation or whether it's the fact that they ate three meals that day. (laughs) You can find out on Twitter who's popular and who you should be following and who you should be canceling. You can find out what clothes you should be wearing, and you can see the new clothes that your friends and family just bought. You can find out what people are eating for dinner tonight. With any big news story, with every tragedy. The what we know articles go viral. Because we all start searching for knowledge. Can I just find out one more thing? Can I see one more video? Can I find out... Who the shooter is? Can I find out any information about him? And we go on and on and on in this cycle of looking for one more picture, one more post, one more article, one more news story, one more Insta reel. Hours spent seeking to satisfy that itch of knowledge. So let me ask you this question. Are are you satisfied? Have you ever arrived at enough? Have you ever learned enough about your friends to where you say, I can turn it off now and I don't need to follow anybody anymore? Does this search for knowledge in your life result in being rested or does it result in you being restless? Does this mountain of information that we have access to, does it feel encouraging to you and attainable or does it make you feel very confused? And very discouraged and very, very small. Knowledge cannot satisfy. Why can knowledge not satisfy us? We have a few reasons here. Number one, knowledge does not satisfy because knowledge cannot solve our greatest problem. The writer of Ecclesiastes in verse 15 begins with a short poem. He says this What is crooked? cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted crooked here means to be twisted meaning there are twists in our society there are things that are so messed up there are things that that are so confusing that it doesn't seem like we can ever straighten them out gaps he turns to next what is lacking cannot be counted these these gaps in our knowledge There are unfathomable depths of what there is to learn and to know beyond human capacity. And he's saying, who has ever mined these depths? Who has has ever been able to fill all of the gaps of our knowledge? How do we create a world with no war? What knowledge does it take? And what use of that knowledge, guiding us with wisdom, can finally lead us to a place where wars forever cease? I mean, we've tried from communism to capitalism, yet wars continue on and on and on. Oh, and then if we're honest, we have to to admit that as long as there is hatred in the human heart, there's going to be hatred between nations. As long as a man steals another man's wife, there's going to be nations that steal other people's property. Meaning we have to go deeper in our knowledge. Not just with political theory and systems, but we have to get into the soul of the human being. Meaning why are humans the way they are? Meaning we have to have the knowledge that can help us deal with greed. To forever do away with adultery. Will we ever have enough knowledge to solve these human problems? And and even if we did, even if somebody had all the knowledge, can we be sure that we live in a just and equitable society where people would use that knowledge for the good of human beings? But even still, how can knowledge ever get us to the place where we can reverse the problem of death? And so, the writer says, knowledge for knowledge's sake, what's the use? It's vanity. What's the value in it? According to Google, there are 3.2 million PhDs in America today. Institutions are cranking out PhDs faster than any other era. Men and women who have studied, spent, hours, and years studying vastly important aspects of sociology and science and medicine for the benefit of human beings, yet our problems continue. Yet there's a shooting at Morgan State a couple weeks ago. Yet there was just another mass shooting in New England. Meaning... This is what the author is saying. He's saying there are twists in our knowledge that cannot be made straight. There are things that are so crooked that as much as we study the human mind and the heart and the way that we operate, there are things that we can't seem to fix. He's saying there are gaps in our ability to know things. There are gaps in our ability that no amount of knowledge is able to fill. So knowledge, he says, cannot solve our greatest problem. The second reason that knowledge can't satisfy is because knowledge cannot supply our need for meaning. It never supplies our need for meaning. It never satisfies. It never fulfills us. Verse 16, he goes on. A little bit more about himself. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me Over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He's saying, I am the wisest king who's ever been in Israel. Meaning, if anybody has any kind of uh, authority, credentials to be able to talk about knowledge in this way, it is this man, the smartest in his field. One commentator says that he was a man of unlimited genius. He's saying, I've had it all. I'm at the top of my field. I know what it's like to be smart. I know what it's like to be educated. I know what it's like to have the ability to know a whole bunch of facts and be able to use them to accomplish my purposes and goals. Which, by the way, accomplishing purposes and goals, he did. We're going to see that more later. Some of the things that this man was able to accomplish. Verse 17, though, he says, I I applied in my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. What he's saying there is, uh, by saying I applied my heart to know these things, the heart is the very center of the individual, according to the Hebrew understanding. Uh, And and, and so what he's saying is, is, I gave my whole to this. This wasn't just merely a, uh, just some kind of like, you know, mental research project where I uh, just kind of sat back in my study and thought of a couple things and got a couple things together. He's saying, I, I dove head first into this. Some of it is probably his lived experience. Some of it was probably intentionally going after some of these things. But he's saying, I, I saw this pool of, of knowledge before me and I dove into it to see if I could find any meaning in it. I've given my whole to this study. And not only just wisdom, but he says, and to know madness and folly. Meaning, I've also tested the opposite. I've also tested foolishness. What if we just walk away from knowledge? Maybe the fool has satisfaction. Maybe the mad have a sense of fulfillment. I've tested it all, he says. Verse 17, his conclusion, I perceived that this also is but a striving. After the wind. Like success, which he's already talked about in his first poem, he says of knowledge, it is meaningless, it's meaningless, it's all meaningless. I've had it all, I've seen it all, and it is all meaningless. Oh, if you think you're the smartest in your field, there is someone smarter. If you think one more bit of information can satisfy you, there will be some other bit of information that you don't know. Postmodernism is proof of this. Meaning the previous sort of generation of philosophers, the modern philosophers, they had confidence in knowledge. They believed, essentially, that you could remove the vertical. And we could just look at the horizontal with no reference to God. And we could discover the meaning of life. We could discover how all things exist. We could discover where there's fulfillment in life. That's what a lot of the old philosophers were doing. Looking at the vertical. Postmodernism is sort of the end of all of that. Postmodernism, like our generation today, basically says, oh, you, you once thought that you could have confidence in knowledge? Well, I don't know if you can know anything. It's not possible to know anything. It's not possible to have confidence in anything. What they're doing is they're simply following that logical pattern of removing the vertical from it. Let's just look at the horizontal and where does that take us? It takes us to this question, what is truth? What is truth? Like how do we even know we even exist? Oh, and the writer of Ecclesiastes has already told us, nothing is new under the sun. How about Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who Jesus stood before on trial? Pilate asks Jesus, oh, so you're a king? How does Jesus answer? Jesus says in John 18, 27, he says, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world, listen to this, to bear witness to the truth. To tell you what's true. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's saying this if there is truth, and there is, God needs to stoop down to our level to bear witness to truth. Meaning, what's the doctrine here? We need the revelation of God, we need the vertical. We need God to intervene. We need the vertical to intervene into the horizontal. No God, no truth. No meaning. It's all vanity. You see, this, this was Pilate's, uh, uh, Pilate's end. I mean, he was just left with this unhappy disposition of life. Oh, the unhappiness of his life. What is truth? Pilate then asks, standing in front of Jesus, what is truth? He says, why can knowledge not satisfy us? It's because knowledge cannot solve our greatest problems. Knowledge cannot provide for us, cannot supply our need for meaning. And number three, knowledge cannot secure our happiness. It cannot make you happy. You ever heard the phrase, "Ignorance is bliss?" The third reason as to why knowledge cannot satisfy is because of the unexpected outcomes of knowledge." Look at verse 18. He says, "For in much wisdom is much vexation. In he who, and he who increases knowledge increases." what? Sorrow. Sorrow. So let's test this. You have knowledge at your fingertips. Are you happier with all that you know? You have access to all the world's news, every crisis, every problem, and you read it and you consume it. Does it make you happier to know all of these things? How about when you read? everybody's thoughts on Facebook. You know everybody's inner thinking, every idea they have on Twitter. Are you left after hours of scrolling? Do you, la- do you leave with a sense of happiness? Does knowing all of your friends' locations make you happier? Does knowing what vacation they took, what they're eating, does knowing that you have one friend hanging out with another friend and you didn't get the invite, does that make you happier? Does knowledge satisfy us? How about after you come out of that social media vortex? What I mean by that is when you're looking at the photos and the reels and, and the tweets, or the X's, or I don't even know what we call them anymore and you just constantly more and more information and you know that you're like sick of it you know you you're you're so tired of sitting on your phone looking at insta insta reels i think they're called yet what do you do oh just one more just one more maybe the next one will satisfy me maybe i will find fulfillment if i just learn one more thing maybe if i just research this one last little thing that's on my mind i will finally be satisfied Are you ever satisfied? And are you left happier than you were before? On a very serious note, when you consider teen suicide rates that are staggering over the last 10 to 20 years and how many studies have shown the correlation between teen suicide rates and the increase of social media consumption, knowledge. Does knowledge make us happy? The more you know. Public service announcement so locked into my brain. The more you know. The the Ecclesiastes author is suggesting the more you know, the more sorrow you feel. How about the smartest people you know? Have you ever noticed that some, some of them, as they get older, become the most cynical people you know? The most jaded people you know? Does knowledge really make us happy? The more you know. The more you know, he is suggesting, it is actually an unhappy business. Knowledge for knowledge's sake what he's saying is this, it enlarges the human problem, it doesn't solve it. One author put it this way, he said, Wisdom is a blessing, but it cannot solve life's fundamental problem. And our fundamental problem is our need to know God. Our fundamental problem is not that we are uh, uh, you know, you know, hungry, or the, not that we are thirsty, or not that we are cold, or, or naked, or... or uh, 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 not that we are oppressed or not, not that we are in need, not that we are poor. I mean, all of these things can be certainly problems. And as Christians, we love one another and we seek to help each other's problems. But what we must understand, church, is that our fundamental problem is that we are rebels against God. Amen. And we need to know God. And knowledge for knowledge's sake while wisdom is a blessing it cannot solve our fundamental problem you see the preacher in ecclesiastes is not trying to depress you he's trying to rescue you or maybe another way to look at it is like this he is trying to depress you so that you will know god so that you will turn from your idolatry of the horizontal and know that you must turn to the creator to the Savior. So then what should our relationship be with knowledge? Because see, on one hand, religious folks have tended to say, well, look, I'm all about knowing God and I really don't care about the horizontal. I don't care about society's problems. I don't care about knowing how to fix things as long as I know God and get other people to know God. Whereas the secularist is completely the opposite of that and the secularist says I'm all about the horizontal I'm all about knowing society's problems so that I can be good for this world yet I don't find any value in knowing God or perhaps they might say I don't think we can know God but you see look neither of those are the Christians response Christians are those who know God and we know that we know god not as with knowledge of god as the end goal but with god as the end goal (laughs) does that make sense meaning like i don't know my wife just so i can write a paper about her just so i can prove to you that i know jess but i know her for Jess's sake does that make sense And so a Christian knows God with the glory of God as his or her goal. And the Christian then also understands that God has placed them in this time, in this place, in this society, in this world, which is very real and which has problems. And God has given them uh, uh, resources and abilities and opportunities and this brain. And so therefore, knowledge in the world is a matter of what? Stewardship. We're stewards of the brain and the opportunities and the resources that God has given us. Meaning this, Meaning this. we're also okay with the limitations He's given us. Meaning this, we need not seek to find fulfillment in it. And to run after it. As if we can somehow make ourselves something if we just know more. But rather, we are stewards of what God has given us. For what purpose? To love God and love our neighbor. That's the stewardship of knowledge. But it begins with knowing God. And so, then that leads me to my last question here, and we'll close. How can we know God? How can anybody know God? Turn back over to Ecclesiastes 7 with me really quick. There's this rhetorical question that he asks in this chapter, in verse 13, which which jolts us off of the horizontal and pushes us to see the vertical. Look at verse 13 of chapter 7. He says, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made? Crooked. meant to be a rhetorical question to get us to think. Who can straighten what He has made crooked? Meaning, look at this mess. Look at this confusing mystery of life that we live. Look at the death around us. Look at the decay and the cries and the pain. Who can straighten what He has made crooked? All of this is to push us to revere God. All of this is to push us to see God as the one who has the depths of, ri- uh, of, of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable His judgments. His paths beyond tracing out. Oh, if our, some of our knowledge today is, uh, that we have access to and perhaps that we can delve into is, the Mount, is Mount Everest god's knowledge is the milky way galaxy no beyond god's knowledge is all of the galaxies even beyond god's knowledge is infinite he has infinite knowledge as a matter of fact all knowledge comes from god and not only does god have all knowledge but god has all wisdom meaning god can take all of the facts, and use all of that knowledge to accomplish His his good purposes for you. Meaning, where I want us to turn before we leave here is to God. I want us to glorify God. I want us to see our limitations and to see God's beauty To see the wonder of who God is. To see the awesome reality of God's infinite knowledge and infinite wisdom. Oh, the smallness of man. Here we are, toiling away. And what I want you to know is that we can know truth. And not only that, but listen, our problem additionally, which I haven't even delved into, is the fact that we need to be known. You know, how many of our problems come from the fact that I'm not really known? That I don't even know if I know myself. Not only can we know God, but this infinite God who has like mega knowledge of all the stars and the galaxies also has micro knowledge of you. He knows you better than you know yourself. This is why the scripture uses these, these, these ideas of, uh, that are true of God that, that point to so much more, such as, He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's closer to you than even your thoughts are. This vertical who has come into the horizontal. Oh, consider what God has done. Who can make straighten? What God has made crooked, we look to God. Amen? Let me close with the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Paul had gone into the city of Corinth. Corinth was a place that was known as the epicenter of Greek knowledge. And when Paul came there, the Apostle Paul didn't come with the the rhetoric of the philosophers of his day. He he didn't come as somebody who, who was flaunting their abilities to speak. Even though Paul was trained... Even though Paul was well educated, even though Paul had knowledge of a lot in this world, he came as one who had a message that was seen as foolishness to the ears of the elite. The message he came was a message of how the vertical had entered the horizontal. How God had stooped down to our level. How God became man and took on flesh. And that was the message that he came with. Utter foolishness to the world. Was it foolishness? Listen to this paragraph. I want to read this paragraph that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's in a letter called 1 Corinthians, which we're studying on Wednesday nights. And he wrote this paragraph on this same topic. He says this. He says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God God made the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the wisdom through its wisdom did not know Him. The world, I'm sorry, For since through the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God And Christ is, listen to this, the wisdom of God. What he's saying is this. Where is the wisdom of God? Where can we find it? It's not in the Buddha who tells you to seek enlightenment within. It's not in Muhammad who gave us more rules and laws. It's not in the wisdom of this age. It's not in this knowledge era in which we live, in which we have every bit of facts accessible to us. He's saying the wisdom of God. Where do you see it? Where do you find it? He's saying the wisdom of God is in the crucifixion of Christ. Meaning God who has infinite knowledge and has infinite ability to use that knowledge, a.k.a. wisdom. The facts and the use of those facts has led God in His wisdom to The cross. And we see the cross. We see what Christ has done for mankind. And Paul is saying, there is the wisdom of God. There is the wisdom of God. Pilate stood before truth himself. And he asked the question, where is truth? Oh, through Noah... God gave us knowledge of judgment, but that knowledge didn't solve our problem. Through Moses, God gave us knowledge of the law, but knowledge of the law did not solve our problem. Through the prophets, God gave us knowledge of His promises, but knowledge of His promises did not solve the problem. It was only when heaven came down that glory filled our soul. Wisdom... The wisdom of God took on flesh. And we've seen Him and known His glory glory of God the Father. All of the facts that God knows and all of His ability to use those facts led Him to accomplish His goals for us in Christ. Meaning it was the wisdom of God which directed Christ to leave the glories of heaven to come to earth. It was the wisdom of God which directed Christ to live a life of righteousness on our behalf which we could never do for ourselves. It was the wisdom of God which led Christ up Mount Calvary to die for the sins of mankind. It was the wisdom of God that led Christ to remain on the cross for three hours, taking the full punishment for our sins in His body on the tree. And it was the wisdom of God that led Christ to get up from the dead three days later as the stone was rolled away. And to bring life to all. To reverse the problem of death. The wisdom of God did it! God did it! And it's the wisdom of God that He calls us to be saved by grace through faith. Not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and you have the promise that you one day will be raised to new life with God forever and ever and ever. It's the wisdom of God, church. And one day, He is coming again. O oh, Lord, haste the day when our faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is for us to know truth. And to know truth is Jesus Christ. Christ is truth. Truth is Christ. And He's done this for us so that we might know Him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your wisdom for us in our salvation. God, we ask that we trust Jesus Christ. Look to him. Find our hope in him. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.